Well, good morning. Great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And I want to extend my welcome to you today as well. I want to let you know about something that we're doing this Friday that's kind of a special thing. We're one of nine congregations that are part of the Redemption family. And this Friday is one of the first time in probably a few years that we're actually inviting people together from all nine congregations for a night of prayer and a night of worship. And so we would love to have you join us. It'll be this Friday night at Redemption Tempe. That's off of the 101 and Southern. It's pretty easy to get to from here. And uh, would love to have you come. There will be some music, a lot of prayer will guide you through that, and it should be just a time uh, to really come together as the entirety of Redemption Church and just celebrate who God is and thank him during this time of the year and uh, ask for his help as we go forward. So we'd love to have you uh, join us for that. Now, I don't know if any of you who are parents, if you have this thing that that we have in our house, um, which is that as soon as we put our little kids to bed, they get really thirsty. Has anybody experienced this? I don't know if our room is like dehydrated, like they're, they're, but like it's amazing. They don't really ask for much all day, but as soon as it's time for bed, oh my gosh, it is like I'm dying of thirst. And so uh, they just, I got to have a drink. I got to have a drink. And so every night is kind of that battle. And so I don't know if, if you've heard about the, the one particular mother, she sent her son to bed and about five minutes after she had tucked him in, he said, Mommy, I'm, I'm so thirsty. And so just being a gracious, good mom, she went and she got some water and she brought it into him and said, Hey, buddy, here you go. Take a drink. Now, listen, this is the last one. Like, I'm not coming back in here with water. It's time for bed. Well, five minutes later, Mommy, Mommy, I'm really thirsty. She comes to the door and she says, hey, buddy, I told you, we're not doing any more water. Go to bed. Good night. Five minutes later, mommy, I'm so thirsty. She comes to the door and she says, listen, I have tucked you in. I've given you a drink. I've extended you some grace. The next time that you call for me, the next time you get up to get water, you're going to get a spanking. So he goes to bed. Five minutes later, mommy. When you come to spank me, could you bring some water? (laughs) And I just, I love that story because it just shows you that there's something about us as human beings that we just want what we want, right? And we are going to keep asking for it until we get it. We're going to keep trying to have it. And a lot of times the things we want are actually things that aren't very good for us, or we want them in ways that aren't good for us. And this is a problem for all of us. The Bible describes this condition of having to have what we want to have, regardless of what God says. That is what the Bible describes as sin. And sin impacts all of us. Every person. My friend Tyler likes to say, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. If sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. And so we find ourselves in a very interesting spot in the book of Exodus. That's what we've been studying here over these last uh, months. And we actually just have today and next week left, and then we'll go into our Advent season. So we're kind of nearing the end. And, um, and, and we've just seen God do so many wonderful things. At the beginning of the book, we see that the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, and God brings them out of slavery. God rescues them and redeems them with his mighty hand and in his outstretched arm. God does not rescue them because they deserve it. God does not free them because they are good. 
God frees them because he is gracious. And then in his grace, he decides he wants his people to be a display people. He wants to put Israel, as it were, in the display case of heaven so that the rest of the nations could look at what life is like with God and go, wow, there's no one like him. Here's what it said in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. It said, now therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wanted to set Israel apart to say, when you obey me, life goes really well. When you obey me, you are living in line with how I created the world. And the nations will see that and think, wow, God is really something. And so then in the next chapter, uh, God makes these kind of wedding vows to the people. In chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, this kind of covenant commitment that God enters into with his people. That's followed by uh, more covenant expectations in chapters 21 through 24, uh, where God says, here's what life's like with me. Here's how this is a better law than all the other nations have. Uh, Here's who I am. And here's how the people respond to it in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. It says, then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. All that the Lord has spoken will do, we will be obedient, right? They, they've gone through this incredible experience. God has been so gracious. God has made all these powerful promises to them. And they say, we're in, we're committed here we go. I think about this being like the last night of camp, right? Some of you that grew up going to youth camp or student camp, uh, you know, we don't, we don't put a lot of pressure in our camps on the last night, but a lot of kind of youth camps, there's like the last night is the big night, right? It's the night when all the girls cry. Um, if you grew up like in 90s youth group, this was the night where you went out to your car and you got all your secular CDs and you brought them into the campfire. <laughs> And, you know, burned them because it's only DC talk from here on out, right? Like, it's just, and, and, and you just, like, last night at camp, it's like, you're making big commitments. Okay, God, I'm all in. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to start a Bible study at my school. I'm going to break up with that loser. I'm going to listen to my parents, right? And, and it's like all these big commitments. And that's what the people of Israel make. But then it says, At the end of chapter 24, the last verse of chapter 24 says that Moses then went up the mountain and entered the cloud, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So they've had this huge commitment, yes, God, we're all in. Moses goes up to the mountain, he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, while he's gone, he's hearing from God chapters 25 to 31, So all that chapter 25 to 31, Moses hasn't even told the people yet. He's just kind of getting a download from God about it. But he's getting this over a 40-day period while he's gone, and they don't know where he is. And so everything has been so exciting. Everything has been so wonderful. Everything has been building up to this point where the people of Israel are going to be God's display people. And then it says this in chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 40 days after saying, yes, God, we'll do it. 
will do what? Well, the first two commandments of Exodus 20 were, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Yes, God, we're doing it. Yes, God, I'm all in. 40 days later, what happened to that Moses guy? Let's make a carved image. Let's worship that. What? And here's the reality. Here's what I know about you, and here's what I know about me, is we are people who are so capable of doing what they did. Having a great worship service, going to a great event, going to a Friday prayer night with all nine congregations gathered together, going to camp, going to vacation Bible school, having a great quiet time with God. Oh yes, God, I'm in. Yes, God, I love you. And then it is not very long before our hearts wander and our hearts drift. And we find ourselves doing things that we swore hours or days before. I'm never going to do that again. And we do it. Why? And I think the answer to that is unpacked at least somewhat. I can't exhaust the answer to that question. That's a hard question. But the answer to that is, is, is fleshed out a bit in Exodus chapter 32. Now, this is really kind of a unit that goes 32 to 34, and so today really is going to be just part one. I was actually supposed to preach today from 32 to 34, and I thought, you know what, as I was preparing, I was going, this is like multiple sermons, so I'll just make it multiple sermons. That's what I decided to do. So, so if you feel like, man, there's a lot in today's sermon, it could have been worse, all right? <laughs> So uh, you really kind of have to come back next week and sort of see how this resolves. Because I'm going to kind of introduce some tension and some challenges and some things that aren't going to totally resolve today. I'll try to kind of help a bit. Um, but this is going to be of an, a bit of an introspective look today. A lot of our study in the book of Exodus has been, look at God, look at how amazing he is, look at all that he did, look at how powerful, look at him, look at him, look at him. Today is actually on purpose going to be a little bit of a look inward. Hey, what's in us? They can go, yeah, God, I'm all in, and then, eh, whatever, let's make a golden calf. What is that? That's what we're going to unpack here a bit. So we need God's help, and we need God to search us. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I do ask that you would send your spirit, that you would search us and know us. God, we are prone to wander. God, we're people who Though Jesus has come as the light of the world, we tend to love darkness rather than the light. And so God, give us insight even into our own hearts. God, I pray that today would actually be a, a moment where you begin to actually break some of the chains of habitual sin. That you would awaken us to ourselves and that by your spirit you would allow this to be a moment of clarity that we could walk with you day after day, week after week, year after year in lives of faithful obedience as your treasured possession, your holy people. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, what we see in this chapter in Exodus 32 is rebellion against God. That's what we've titled the sermon is just the rebellion. This is rebellion against God. God had told them, don't worship any other gods. Don't make any graven images. It, within the very first few verses, that's exactly what they're doing. 
And what I want you to see is that what happened to Israel is the same thing that happened to us. And I think you can kind of look at it in terms of this kind of rebellion against God formula, okay? This rebellion against God, it often has these two ingredients. First, rebellion against God often begins with disordered loves, disordered loves, I think it was St. Augustine who coined that term, but the idea of disordered loves is that these are things that we love more than we should. Sometimes these are bad things that we love. Often these are good things that we kind of put in the place of God and love more or even as much as him. And so when our loves get disordered, that's kind of an internal problem. The scripture calls that maybe the flesh the sinful nature, this reality that we love created things more than the creator. We exchange the truth about God. We have disordered loves. So disordered loves meets moments of insecurity, need, or fear. And when disordered loves meets moments of insecurity, need, or fear where we're not really sure what to do, we feel stressed, we feel afraid, we feel like something's lacking. What we often do, even those of us who are followers of Christ, is we turn to sin. The Bible calls this sin, calls it rebellion, calls it idolatry, but we turn to other things besides God rather than turning to God, right? Because essentially what we're doing is saying, oh, here's this thing I want, Oh, here's this thing that in this moment I feel like I need. You know what? Instead of asking God to help me, instead of asking God to guide me into the path of obedience, I'm going to turn away from God to something else. Uh, Here's how you see this in this story. First, you see disordered loves. And in this story, um, it's actually helpful to look at how one of the New Testament followers of Jesus saw this story. And so when you go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, there's a follower of Jesus named Stephen who is being killed for his faith. And right before he's killed for his faith, he kind of recounts the whole story of the Jewish people. And listen to what he says when he talks about this part. Look at what he says in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 39. He says, Our fathers refused to obey God, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Isn't it fascinating how Stephen describes this? Because this is almost exactly like what you read in Exodus 32, except Stephen says it this way, in their hearts they turned to Egypt. The people of Israel had disordered loves, even though God had rescued them, even though God had offered all these promises, even though God had showed his power, their hearts were still in Egypt. You see this as you read the whole story in Exodus 14. There's this place where right as they're approaching the the Red Sea, uh, the the chariots are coming against them and they're like, Moses, what did you do? Why did you lead us out here? We're going to die. We would have had it better in Egypt. And they cross the Red Sea. And in chapter 16, they're hungry. This is actually kind of a humorous little passage. I'll I'll turn to it. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 3, they're struggling with food. They're in the wilderness. And it says, the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. 
For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I just think that's so interesting, right? The, they're, they're all going, remember the good old days of slavery? Backbreaking work when Egypt tried to kill all of our firstborn sons? Oh, that was amazing because we got to sit back and eat some meat around the pots of meat. Like, what? But there's this reality of, of we remember our past maybe better than it is. We remember our sin more tasty than it is. They've been set free, but they want to go back to Egypt in their hearts. Chapter 17, you see the same thing. They're grumbling this time about water. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt and kill us, our children, with thirst, right? It's like it's bedtime for Israel, and they're thirsty, right? And so everything, we had it better in Egypt. We had it better in Egypt. We had it better in Egypt. There's this thing that Stephen notices that in their hearts they turned to Egypt. See, their hearts had already moved toward idolatry. And in Egypt, you worshiped idols. In Egypt, you worshiped things you could see. In Egypt, all the religion felt more tangible, felt more systematic, felt more structured. It wasn't a relationship with a God who could surprise you. And so their hearts turn back. Their loves are disordered. And, then, and, and that's what we might call idolatry. Now, when we think of idolatry, we mostly think of totem poles. We think of golden calves. We think of statues. But there's this reality the rest of the Bible talks about that we are all idolatrous. We put other things in the place of God. Uh, Tim Keller has a fantastic book called Counterfeit Gods. It's short. It's great. And in that book, here's what he says about idols. He says, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So get this. Idols are often good things that we put in the place of God things, ultimate things. If I have that career, if I have that relationship, if I have that status, if I have that experience, then I'll be okay. When what our heart should be doing is saying, if I have God, that's all I need. But as John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. And so we have all sorts of disordered loves. And then those disordered loves meet the next part of the formula, which are moments of insecurity, fear, or need. Notice this in the Exodus story. In Exodus chapter 32 In verse 1, notice how the people find themselves in a place where they're not exactly sure what's going on. It says in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. So there's uncertainty now. We've been led by Moses. God has spoken to Moses. Moses has spoken to us. We've had some comfort. We've had some security. We've understood that this is at least how this structure works. But now Moses wandered up that mountain. We haven't seen him. That's what they say at the end of the verse. As for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. He's gone. And so here they are. They've left Egypt, which they kind of still long for. They're in the wilderness. They're supposed to be headed to a promised land. And it starts to get nervous. How are we going to get there? How are we going to go? What's going to go in front of us, right? The whole way up to this point, Moses 
has been the experience of, of God's leadership of them into this next phase. And God himself was leading in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And notice what it says when they talk to Aaron in verse one. It says, up, make us gods who shall go before us. See, they've reached this moment of, of insecurity, of need, of fear. They're afraid. What if we move on, but we have no gods going before us? What if we move on, but there's no one on our side? And so the disordered loves that they kind of long for Egypt still, combined with this moment of insecurity, this moment of temptation, they're not sure how it's going to work out, says, all right, we'll solve this. We'll take matters into our own hands. Let's make a golden calf. And that's what they do. They take off their rings. It says in verse four, Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They turn to sin. They make offerings in verse six. They eat, they drink, they celebrate, they have a kind of ceremonial feast, and then they rise up to play, it says at the end of verse six, which means revelry, probably lots of sexual morality, which was part of how all the other nations worshiped. And then they are God's bride, God's showcased people, acting just like the Egyptians. Now, here's what we need to understand. We're not too different from that, are we? Because we have disordered loves that encounter certain moments and we turn to sin. Here's some examples. We all love our kids, right? I hope. <laughs> some of you may not feel particularly loved by your parents, but I hope parents that we love our kids. But some, some people love their kids too much. Their kids are not just their kids that they're trying to raise up and send off, but their kids are their security. Their kids are their hope. Their kids are their future. The kids are their reputation. And they idolize their kids. And then they face a moment where they encounter a teacher who doesn't idolize their kids. <laughs> and who gives little Biff the grade he deserves. And who maybe allows him to get disciplined when he deserves it and maybe even to be caught up in discipline when, of the whole class when they don't all deserve it. And so you have a disordered love meets a moment of fear and insecurity and how dare they do that to my perfect little angel and all of a sudden now a parent is acting like an insane person emailing the principal, texting all the other parents. You'll never believe, da, 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 this person's so bad, they treated me so wrong, we're gonna lawyer up. Blah, 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 blah. Stop, right? And, and, and this are, these are Christians who wanna organize a group to pray for the school. And, and that's not a very good witness. Maybe you see it in other ways. Maybe... You're a person who just, you really long for comfort and rest and relaxation. And, and so that's your disordered love. It's great. I mean, comfort's a great gift of God. But if we kind of idolize comfort, then we'll kind of resist anything that threatens our comfort. And if you really love comfort a lot, and then you find yourself in a situation where maybe your schedule's too busy or things at work are not going particularly well, you have this desire for comfort, you have this situation of stress and unrest and difficulty, what do you turn to? 
Well, maybe you found yourself turning to a bottle of wine every night. Full bottle, just you. Maybe it started with, I just need to take the edge off. I, you know, just a drink with dinner. But now you can't even sleep without this. And you're sitting there and you're going, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I, how did I get here? Disordered love. Met a moment of insecurity and fear and need. And you turn to sin instead of turning to the Lord. Maybe you're an older person and you value respect and you value authority and those are good things, but maybe you've started to elevate that a little bit too much. And the unfortunate thing about that is you encounter moments, maybe with your grandkids, maybe with people in this church, maybe with other people just in society who don't necessarily value authority and respect the way you do, and you find that they actually tend to ignore you. They act like you're irrelevant. They act like your opinion doesn't matter. They say things in front of you that make you think like, I'm losing some hearing, but not that much. And you have this inordinate desire to be respected, met with people who ignore you. And where do you turn to? You can get critical, you can get bitter, you can get angry, you can start to distance yourself relationally from people who need you close by. Right, see how subtle this is? I mean, this isn't like we're all off into drug dealing. But this is saying we all have disordered loves that in the right moment, we're going to have to either turn to God or turn to something else. That's rebellion against God. We do this personally. We do this culturally. We do this as a society. We do this as a nation. Idolatry is something that we don't just do personally. We do it even all together. I don't have time to get into all of that. What are the results of it? Well, we see three results in this particular passage. The first one is that when we rebel against God, it exchanges the glory of God. We make God seem to be really small and unimportant. We make God seem to be like, eh, we don't need him. And we make the thing that we turn to to seem really important. Maybe our power, maybe our control, maybe some sort of substance, maybe some sort of relationship. And now that's what gets main stage and God is kind of... An afterthought. We see how they exchange the glory of God in a few places. Look at verse one. They say, these gods will go before us. Well, no, they won't. Yahweh has gone before you. In verse four, they make this calf and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. No, it's not. That's a lie. That's wrong. That's incorrect. This statue that you made five minutes ago did nothing. The living God of the universe is the one who deserves the glory and you just took it from him. Verse six, they offer burnt offerings, peace offerings. These were things that were only supposed to be given to God. They belonged to him. And they gave it to someone and something else. That's what idolatry and rebellion do, is they make God seem small. See, 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 we're a church. We talk a lot about our witness, about how we want to be the best friend our community has, how we want to be a pink spoon people, to give people a taste of the kingdom of God. And when we talk about that, a lot of you, I think you hear it and you think, okay, I got to invite people to stuff. I got to share the gospel. I got to bone up on my answers to tough questions about Christianity. And all that is wonderful to do. Please do all that stuff. But here's the thing. Our witness is weak when we, as the people of God, act like God 
is no big deal. That's what the world sees and goes, yeah, I don't need that. They, don't, they live just like me. They love what I love. They care about what I care about. Whatever. I'll just go to brunch. Have fun at church. And so one of the ways we could witness would be to repent of turning to these other things and instead to turn toward the Lord. We don't want to exchange the glory of God. In his book, Hunger for God, John Piper says it this way. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking and all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. And we're going to push more into that next week. I'm going to just kind of leave that hanging. Do you, do you quit watching TV? Do you quit exercising? I'm not saying those things. But in our hearts, we can make anything into an idol. We can make anything substitute, and it's scarcely recognizable. Rebellion against God results in exchanging the glory of God. Secondly, rebellion deceives the idolater, deceives us, leads us into self-deception. This is probably my just favorite humorous part of this story. Uh, Look with me at chapter uh, 32, verse 21. We didn't read this part yet. Uh, So Moses finally gets down the mountain and starts to ask questions about what happened. He asks Aaron in verse uh, 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? Right, Aaron's been with Moses the whole way. Moses would be like, Aaron, how did they trick you, man? Like, I thought you were like faithful. What happened, man? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Moses, you've been gone a while. Or do you get what he's doing? This is exactly what Adam does when God confronts him in the Garden of Eden. And he says, hey, Adam, what happened? Uh, I told you not to eat of that tree. You ate of the tree. What's up? What does Adam say? He says, the woman that you gave me. That's, what, that's exactly what Aaron's doing here. He's going, Moses, like, you know the people, and by the way, you were gone. And then here's, here's the best part. Here's the, here's the ultimate in self-deceit. Verse 24, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> you're like, you're like, I mean, Moses doesn't even dignify this with a response. Like, he doesn't even answer, because this is so absurd. Verse 4 said, Aaron uh, received, it's like, verse 4 is like slow motion. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool 
and made a golden calf. And Aaron's version is, I threw it in and it just came out. (laughs) Sin makes us stupid. We get blind. We get self-deceived. We become stupid. That's why God starts to call the people stiff-necked. This is the first place, and it's going to happen a lot through the rest of the Bible, where God's going to say, you're a stiff-necked people. Why? What are stiff-necked? Cows. What did they worship? A cow. You become like what you worship. You worship dumb, blind, inflexible Empty idols, that's what you become. You worship the living God, you're transformed in his image. But we get deceived. Ah, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, well, it's just one drink. Oh, you know, I can quit anytime. Oh, this is how anyone who loves their, parents, their kids reacts. And we just deceive ourselves. What's the result of this? Well, number three, Our rebellion infuriates God. Infuriates God. Verse seven says this. This is while Moses is still up on the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. This is like when I get home and my wife's like, your son. You'll not believe what your son did today. Right? It's like, wait, I thought we were in this together. That's what Moses is saying. God, I thought we were in this together. And the Lord's going, your people. These are your people. They've corrupted themselves. Verse 8, they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. The, the, the marriage thing just happened. They're already here. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf, and they've worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. You get what God's saying? God is saying, I am furious. So here's what I want to do. I want to just scrap all of them, consume all of them, nuke all of them, and I'm starting over with you, Moses. You're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can still be faithful to my promise, but I can't stand these adulterous, stiff-necked people. Now, before we feel like, oh, that's so mean of God, he's just losing it. No, 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 no. We've seen through this whole book, God is in control even with his wrath. We saw it in the plagues. What were the plagues? Were the plagues just God flying off the handle? No, the plagues were precision strikes where God gave exactly what the Egyptians deserved, often in the ways that the Egyptians afflicted the Israelites. Then in his law, what does it say? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It doesn't say an eye for a tooth. It's exactly proportional. It's exactly just. God is measured, God is just, and God has just entered into a marriage covenant with his people. And it's like he ran out to get something to drink on his honeymoon, and he came back to the room, and his bride is with someone else. How would you feel? 
Some of you know that kind of betrayal. And if someone came to you and said, well, you should just lighten up, you'd go, you don't get it. God loves us. God is for us. And God knows that the best thing we could have is him. Not some false imitation that makes us dumb. And so God is rightly angry. Now, this, this rubs us wrong because we think, well, we deserve forgiveness. We deserve grace. If you think you deserve grace, you don't know what grace is. You deserve wrath. You deserve punishment. You deserve justice. You deserve hell. We have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, and said, oh, that'll satisfy us. That is evil, God says. And we deserve his wrath for it. And the people get a taste of God's anger and Moses' anger as well. In verse 20, what you see is that Moses is so furious, he comes down the mountain. When he sees it, he breaks the tablets that God had written the law on. He melts down the golden calf and he grinds it into a powder and pours it in the water so that they have to drink it. Right? This is like when you got caught with chewing tobacco and your dad was like, eat the whole can. And then 3,000 of the revelers are killed for making a mockery of their worship. At the end of the chapter, there's a plague. We don't even know what that means, that God sent a plague on the people because of their rebellion. And we're not quite sure how this is going to go when we end in chapter 32, which is why you got to come back next week. But here's what I know. Like Israel, we... You and I, we have disordered loves. We turn to idols. We turn to sin. We exchange the glory of God. We treat God like he's really small. We become dumb. We become deceived. We are stiff-necked people. We deserve God's wrath. So the question is, is there any hope And I'll give you a full answer of the hope next week. But today, there's a hint. It's a hint in chapter 32. You've got to turn to verse 30. Verse 30, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses says, all right, everybody, I'm gonna try to make atonement. I don't know if this will work. And he goes up and says, God, we blew it. God, we're sorry. And God, will you forgive these people? But if you won't forgive these people, will you blot me out? instead of them. And it says in verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In other words, Moses, that's a nice offer. You're not sinless. I can't substitute you for them because you are an idolater too. 
And the hope for us is in who that story points to. Because there was another Israelite, another son of Abraham, who had no sin, Jesus. And he went to make atonement for idolatrous, stiff-necked, dumb, deceived people. And God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on the cross so that in him we, idolaters, might become the righteousness of God in him. That's our hope. And we're going to see a fuller picture of that even next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are righteous and good and just. And you deserve our whole hearts. You deserve that we would love you with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And God, we do not. And so forgive us and cleanse us and allow us to move toward you in faith and move toward Christ for forgiveness of sins and move toward you in obedience. God, not so that we can try to earn your pleasure. We can't do that. But having received your forgiveness, would we walk in a way that shows that you are big and great and worthy of following. We need your help, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.